it's good to be here. I should say I'm a kind of rank amateur in the world of um, narratives and certainly of narratology. Um, I kind of came to this, come to this through a project that I've been running now for several years um, on contested narratives of the global. Um, and I, what I'll do is to try and fulfill some of my brief, which is to talk about the powers and the perils of narrative. Um, but I also do want to say a little bit about the role of the global. And I particularly want to pick up the point that Peter Bolton made last night in his recollections of the 1940s about the sense of the increasing marginalization of Europe. Yesterday and in so many times when I listen to people talking about Europe, the internalist sense, the, I think the inadequate attention that is given to the role of the other, the external, the global, in the stories that Europe does tell, and perhaps even more in the stories that Europe needs to tell and should tell if they're going to be uh, convincing stories. So the power of, of narrative, um, socially imagined ways of, or socially constructed ways of imagining the world. Narratives have a complex texture. They're made up of ideas, discourses, performances, images, messages that are carried by a whole range of, of storytellers. They can accommodate worldviews that fluctuate over time whilst at the same time still supporting essential elements of the same script. Their power clearly, as we heard yesterday, comes from some combination of politics and emotions. They offer raison blanche rather than logic and consistency. Their power is built around the idea, and of course we find this expressed in, in, lo in lots of people. Just regard, for me, I think Charles Taylor is the most powerful exponent of this. But human beings make sense um, of particularly complex, contested, multi-causal phenomenon by telling stories. Stories in particular that link past, present, and future. These stories have enormous power, and this is where the strategic communication literature on narratives clearly comes in in helping us understand that power of political mobilization. Um, everybody, it seems to me, in, the, in the, the reading I've done across different disciplines, pulls out different things that they particularly like about narratives, or they find useful for their purposes in the discussion of narratives. Um, for me, in, in the sense of trying to think and make sense, or trying to use the struggle for narratives as a way of making sense of different ideas of the global and globality, it is the explicit role, usually explicit, as it can be, but often very explicit, very important anyway, role of time and space in narratives, in political narratives. Um, ideas of purpose, of change, of possibility, of transformation. It is those ideas, that teleological character to many political narratives, uh, that gives them this great power of mobilization. Of course, of course not just on the side of, who, of those who are pressing narratives of change, it can equally well be on the side of those who are contesting those narratives of change. The revival we've seen in recent years, particularly from the right, of contesting notions of liberal progress. Um, sometimes, and I think interestingly just now as it was in Central Europe in the 1920s, ideas that seem to be hocking back, nostalgic, looking back to a previous time, that are often themselves very modern. They're built on a particular understanding and contestation of what is wrong with, with particularly liberal modernity. And narratives matter 
penumbratively. Um, Roger Smith talks about you know, political stories, economic stories, but he lays particular emphasis on ethically constitutive stories. And it seems to be those stories are the ones that really matter politically. And they also matter normatively and morally. So a little bit on the power. What about the perils, or at least the recurring issues? Um, sort of four things I've got to say. The first is this whole question of how deep, how just, uh, you know, a narrative things that actors, stories that actors tell for their own purposes. Are they just things, this is one view, certainly in the older sort of philosophy history literature, um, but they're representations. They are things that particularly historians, but not just historians, in a sense, construct to impose some sort of coherent order on a historical reality. But it's a still an idea of sort of narratives as representation versus a much stronger notion uh, that narratives are really the means by which we come to know, to come to understand, to come to make sense of where we are in the world, so that narratives and narratology really are far more strongly constitutive of our, of our social identity. And that sort of debate divergence runs through, seems to me, in my um, amateur way. A lot of the literature obviously speaks to much bigger issues in social theory. Um, secondly, and related agency. Um, the overwhelming thrust in political science literature, certainly on a topic like nationalism, was to make everything very instrumental, rationalist, agent-centric. And slowly we've seen a sort of pushback, not least by those who say, well, of course, yes. You know, loads of instrumentality, obviously. But there are certain stories that work. And what we need to understand is why certain stories work and why others don't. Why they get institutionalized in particular places. Why they disappear. Why they reappear. And obviously why there are multiple stories. There's never a single story. There are always many stories. There are many stories of, of peoplehood. And thirdly, and that's maybe it'll come up during the day when we sort of move into the people who really do the narratives, the historians who tell the stories, it's all this question of, of everyone is bound up in these narratives. Political scientists pretending that they can sort of produce universal knowledge are themselves endlessly working off and through the big narratives that someone else has constructed for them, whether in another part of academia or in the world. And that tension between what we kind of see in the world and how we think about the narratives is really crucial. And just one example, which I think came up yesterday. You know, we're very much back in a world where this idea of you know, cosmopolitan nativist, you know, the cleavage between the national and the something else, this is the major cleavage. This is the sort of dominant way we make sense of shifting identities. And yet, again, the historians can correct me. One of the things I think that we now see much more historically were the very close connections between nationalism, internationalism, cosmopolitanism, regionalism. Um, these things merge together and come together in complex ways. Um, and so some of the puzzling things, when you think as an outsider, which are seen by other people as natural, Europe is this artificial construction that no true virtue could ever believe in. And yet you think of imperial nationalism and some transoceanic sense of identity gathering peoples across different parts of the world. That's somehow natural. Well, that's uh, pretty bizarre. And my fourth point, and I'm just going to say very few words about the global, is structure. Tomorrow we're going to have views from out elsewhere. But of course, stories, identities, are constructed not just vis-a-vis -vis specific others, but within broader structures. And here, of course, this is where Europe's place in a changing global really does kick in, and kicks in in very difficult ways. After all, Europe has seen itself, and in what many ways was, the site 
of a particular kind of universalizing modernity that was destined to go global through time. This was the source of its great power. So when that sense of arriving at a position where that is no longer true, Tim talked yesterday about the problems of arriving. And the problems of arriving look very different from within and from without. Arriving within, we've done many things, and many of our problems are the problems of success, enlargement, deepening, making, all that kind of stuff. But the problems from outside of arriving in 1989 were very different. And I do think, for all we sort of endlessly, quite rightly think and focus on 1989 in Europe, we do need to get away from 1989 when we think about Europe in the bigger picture. 1989 inaugurates a very bizarre blip in the picture of the bigger world and where Europe is. It inaugurates a period where Europe's narratives of the global, regulating global capital, liberal global capitalism, coming up with normative power, fit with the way that the world seems to be going at a particular moment in time. But of course, it is a particular moment in time, which is very odd if you think about Europe's position in the bigger world in the longer period of the 20th century, where that notion of what happens when what had been the core region becomes the secondary region in the global system actually is the factor that works to underpin many of the great tensions and contestations in the stories that we're trying to tell about Europe now. So that means that that particular narrative of the global, liberal global capitalism, globalization, technology, managing what, regulation, administration, all the stuff that dominated so much of the 1990s and for which Europe is the model, of course looks very different if you tell a story of globalization, of the global, which lays much more emphasis on the geopolitical. So that there, the peace story, the killing of Hobbes internally, has to be shifted to a story of how can we recreate Hobbes externally, how the peace story can be a different kind of story in a much harsher and nastier world. And of course, the story of global capitalism as structure and how this is managed. And here, I think the point I was speaking briefly yesterday in my question to Isla Stewart is that part of the real problem is that, that is, it's not the narratives of Europe themselves that are, well, of course, they're important and they need to be discussed. It's the narratives of the alternatives. And at the moment, many of those alternatives flow very freely. They sound great. The family of self-respected, restored nations, non-universalist globalism, connectivity without deep institutionalization. Well, it all sounds marvelous, except that it really is very difficult to work out what those things mean and could mean. And if you think like that, and if you think of the trade-offs, the structural trade-offs, Roderick gave us the trade-off between globalization, democracy, and sovereignty. He missed out, as a liberal economist, identity and military security. You put those five back, and you end up in a range where the range of alternatives is not so great, and where the liberal narrative of Europe as a model for managing those trade-offs still stands as the most successful narrative that we've yet seen. Thanks very much. Last night, as I was listening to these inspiring stories, starting with Peter, I was looking at the room, seeing how all of us were itching to tell our own stories, or at least that we had imagined our mindscape in a bubble above us. And I was trying to imagine what was happening in the interaction of all these silent bubbles. Were they bumping against each other? Were they 
becoming intertwined, where they're connected with threads of colors. Um, so in a way, that's the conversation we're having with our silences, as well as what we say in this room. As in all of Europe, the question, yes, of course, we have as many European stories as individuals in Europe, but how are they connected? How do they create clusters? How do they echo between each other? In sharing some shadows, the long shadow of history, and the kind of evolution that Andy just developed so brilliantly. Um, and indeed, I'm here to tell you a bit, um, at least um, Tim asked me to tell you about this book that he very kindly mentioned yesterday. Um, and I'll put it here for anyone who wants to look at it later. Um, which was actually published uh, almost 10 years ago, um, just after the 50th anniversary of the EU. Do you remember? The great celebration, finally Lisbon Treaty was passed and the Euro crisis was not seen yet, just around the corner. And we, were all, we, we had for the first time a European flag in this very college, do you remember Tim? Uh, and that was quite a big thing. And indeed, everyone was going around in Europe, like Diogenes, you remember in Athens, he was looking in full daylight going around and with the light. What are you doing, Diogenes? looking for a man in full daylight and couldn't find him. And everyone was looking for their European stories. How we have changed since then. So part of the question is how and what's happened in the last decade since this book that I also would like to raise with you. But let me just say some things about, and the book, let me add, was, there, was the product of a five-year-long Euro project called ICON, bringing together all sorts of disciplines, but very much a political philosophy book. So this is unapologetically elitist book, asking about what are, Euro what are our European stories as seen by intellectuals in Europe. Of course, we mused about the relationship between what we guys think and the oi polloi. Is there a connection? But above all, it's about intellectuals. And indeed, the first question that we asked was, why is it that for so long, European intellectuals didn't really care about the European Union? after, in, in the 40s and the 50s. <coughs> Nothing was written, really. And so, very quickly in the intro, we developed three reasons. The first was simply that Europe, a European story, had been perverted, obviously. The second was diversion. The big problem of our age, which we've come back to, was the Cold War, was the structural division of the world, that we could just die tomorrow. Who cares about what's happening in Brussels? All the more that the third reason was disillusion. This is a technocratic thing called steel trade. Who cares? That's not the kind of thing intellectuals think about. Except kind of us European studies people, you know, we're nerds and we care about little regulations. But then something happened, and we all know that mass trade. Eight, not just '89, but post '89, Andy, and the sudden realization that this thing, this animal, was not just a kind of trade thing. There's more than that, a state in the making, whatever. And so in the next two decades, loads of debates around Europe and what it is. And then came our crisis. And that's the after, the post book. But let me say something about the content of the book. Now, the content of the book, first of all, you may ask, Tim raised yesterday, is about national debates around Europe among intellectuals. 
And the term debate is very important. This is not about national stories, about national contestation and disagreements, as we're talking about in this panel. And we have these four groups of countries, the founders, the joiners, the returners, the outliers. And each of them, in a way, have some consistency in their discourse and narrative of Europe, invented, possessed, reified in the core. Um, but then the joiners, it's, it's been othered, and then appropriated and enlisted in these, um, so this was joiners. Uh, and then the returners revealed, defied. And finally, of course, the outliers, are they in, are they out? I will come back on this. So we have these clusters, and they have different ways of appropriating the EU. And indeed, part of the question of the book is, is what's happening between people, clusters, group lost in translation. Now, of course, Tim talked about cacophony yesterday. The book is a cacophony of ideas and provocation. Um, Europe is all these things at the same time, object of desire, but in Romania, ethical hazard, normative power, but also just this giant supermarket, the civitas diaboli very much in the East and the Christianity take. But what do we make of this multiplicity, if not cacophony? Are these stories, are these national debates in their own national linguistic ghetto, very important? Or are there echoes that can lead, in the end, to a polyphony? So the way that the book proliferates, the debates proliferate, but we ended up, and this is the concluding chapter, Finding that there were, across all these countries, we have 14 countries in the book, four kinds of debates. Um, and then we can ask what the polycrisis does to these debates. So we have four types of debate. I'm just going to very quickly give you the bullet points of each debate. So the first debate is about identity uh, in Europe. Identity, um, and above all, seeing that Every country sees Europe through its prism. What has Europe done to my country? What has Europe done to my country? Um, so this, but then there are other prisms, the, the kind of regional, Nordic, central, and cultural prisms. Um, and of course, there's also the stories of the periphery. We were very fascinated by the, peri the different versions of peripheral angst. And this very ways of self-assertion that peripheral countries had, cultures of the underdog, uh, the our nation is at the core, very much, whether you go in Poland, Greece, Romania, we each have our different ways of saying at the core and contesting it. Um, so that was the, um, the, the relational debate. There's a question about how neighbors pairs of dual pairs in Europe interact, how they are, frères et amis, um, and what happens between them. Now, the second debate, and I'm going to go very quickly, is, is not is a civilization, civilizational debate. And we heard yesterday, especially with our Hungarian colleague, what that means, but not only. And of course, this civilizational debate, Andy just mentioned, is about progress and how different countries debate the contested promise of modernity. Um, is Europe its nemesis or is Europe about the pathologies of, of modernity? 
How does Christianity stand in this? What is the source of our European self, from enlightenment to secularism and hegemony? Um, and indeed, how is the malaise of modernity debated across countries, um, including around globalization, but also the very question of community and the loss of organic solidarity, very big at the time. Third debate is the political debate. What is integration? What is this time the contested promise of liberal democracy? Not need in this group to say much about this, but of course, already then, already then, more than 10 years ago, it was all about liberalism and its discontent. Um, and about what is liberal impartiality? And finally, liberalism, what, how do we define in our countries the contours of liberalism? And, and finally, the fourth debate, of course, is that is a definition. What is the definition of Europe? The definition as finalité, the end point. What is the nature of the European polity? And there, of course, we find defin definitional contestation in every country. If we use the word federal, what we contrast it to? Is it contrasted to confederal or to empire? our past or our future? Is it about federal unions versus federal states? Um, all the isms that Andy mentioned. And indeed, we had a bias as editors of the book with Justine Lacroix and Jamie Pellabel, um, because we were interested in the third way. We were interested in the extent to which these national debates would raise the question of whether between nationalism and supranationalism, versions of the nation trope an image that was emerging among our country's <coughs> debates in trying to shape a third way for Europe, and I can say more later. So once we had all of these debates mapped out, the question for us is what do we do with these debates? What do they create? What is the glue that binds us together? And we end up in the book, and in the conclusion, that's the title of the concluding chapter, uh, praising narrative diversity um, and all of these debates, <coughs> but asking, what echoes can be productive for European integration? What is the tone of this polyphony? And yes, the European Union is a babel, but it has kind of simultaneous translation. It's not all lost in, in, in translation. But under this big superstructure of integration, of cooperation, of institution, what is happening to the people of Europe? Because, of course, that's my own bias. Uh, if I was going to tell my story yesterday, I would have talked about being raised in hybridity between Greece and France and Germany and France, and how that makes you obsessed with mutual recognition between people. How deep, how empathetic, how engaged, how limited, too. Kant talked about an enlarged vision. Can we do that? Not really. But we can just play with our dualities. So this was the question we were asking by the end of the book. And I'd like to say, in conclusion, that of course, since the book, um, we've seen the crisis. We have seen the denial of recognition. We have seen Europe through prejudice and insult, as well as material suffering. But what do we do with it? Well, what we did with it with some colleagues was to write a little book on, on the Greco-German affair and asking about whether mutual recognition was lost. Uh, and indeed, finding that in every story, you know, 
I'm known to say that in every story, we have a silver lining. And the silver lining of this Euro crisis that we've gone through is that at the end of the day, even if this engagement has been about denying the other an insult, it's also, in that very way, a way of knowing the other better. That's what we find between Greece and Germany. And I think that's what we found among Europeans with the crisis. So I'd like to appeal to us when we think about European, our European stories and how they mingle and contest each other to remember that there's always a silver lining. Thank you. I'm coming at this from the angle of literature, which might be quite a sort of different field for a lot of uh, you people in the social sciences and in politics. But anyway, here it goes. So a few words then about narrative from a literary point of view. So we've got this term narratology, which means basically the study of narrative. And it is a huge field. Um, I'm not going to touch on anywhere near the different concepts that are being discussed in narratology. I'll just touch on a very few aspects here. And I'm going to use three aspect, three examples of German language authors from three different centuries to just touch on a few questions here. My focus with this is the question of how literary narratives establish identities, both personal and collective ones, and how they discuss the issue of borders and boundaries in a personal, a collective, and a geographical sense. So throughout history, <coughs> literature has always been connect, concerned with the relationship between space and identity. On the one hand, we've got narrative as a way for a culture, a society, to assert its own identity, its border and place in history. And on the other hand, and perhaps more interestingly, you've got literature which challenges these boundaries and identities, tries to shift, blur, or collapse boundaries and distinctions. Now, a fashionable term in literary studies today is transnational literature. So this is literature which transcends the national and linguistic boundaries, whereby authors of one national literature write about other cultures, languages, and experiences, but also literature written by authors who don't neatly fit into any one national category. I'm hopefully going to touch at least on two of those authors. So something which has always been the purpose of literature since the start of writing is the trope of the quest and the journey. So this is something that goes back all the way to the ancient epics. So it's the idea of narrative transporting us into different realms and spaces, taking us on a journey, which is often, of course, then a journey of self-discovery. So writing about the foreign, the exotic, the unknown, shows us something about ourselves. So there's always a kind of dialectical relationship between the other and the self. So on the one hand, you've got narratives which familiarize the exotic and the unknown, but you also have, conversely, narratives which show us that the familiar is really strange, perhaps uncanny, perhaps exotic. So it's that sort of dual relationship which, which is at stake in much of good literature as I would see it. And that sort of exploration doesn't necessarily require people to be very well-traveled. And my first example is the Austrian 19th century writer Adalbert Stifter, not perhaps one of the sort of A list of the literary canon. I imagine many non-Germanists won't have heard of him. So not a very, uh, very eventful life, actually a very unhappy life in many ways. 
but very strange and wide-ranging stories. And I'll just mention his breakthrough story, a novella called Abdias, which he published in 1842 and was a huge hit with his Austrian and German readership. So Abdias tells the story of a North African Jew living in a desert who has a number of devastating blows dealt to him and then makes the journey through the North African desert to the Mediterranean, travels by boat, by ship across, and settles, of all places, in a remote Austrian mountain valley. So it's a story about the, the, the exotic, the foreign, in so many ways, religious, ethnic, ethnographic, coming into what for Stifter's readers would have been the familiar. So it's about looking at the familiar through foreign eyes. My second example is another writer who at least for part of his life would have counted as Austrian and then later, of course, as Czechoslovakian, and that is Kafka. So Kafka, as you know, grew up in the Habsburg Empire, an interesting example of a multilinguistic, multi-ethnic kind of conglomerate of, of nations within one nation state. And interestingly, when Kafka writes about Europe, he doesn't really mention specific spaces or places for the most part. There are a few examples. When Kafka mentions national spaces, he mentions non-European spaces. He mentions Russia, he mentions the Arab desert, and he mentions China. At heart, I am Chinese, once Kafka once wrote to his fiancée in a letter. Im Grunde bin ich ja Chinese. And this fascination with China from the eyes of someone who lived in Prague, a small but multicultural city within the Habsburg Empire, is then transposed into several stories. We've got the most famous, the longest one, building the Great Wall of China, which describes how this wall is in fact an impossible project that can never be built. But what they do instead is that they build only parts of the wall, not even joining them up. The reason they build parts is simply so that the people involved in the project can get a sense of closure. So walls, in this story, are not functioning borders or barriers, they are psychological constructs. And then the story within that longer on building the Wall of China story tells the story of an invasion from the north of savage nomads who invade the capital and destroy the culture of that country of China. So you can see how taken together these two stories really show both how boundaries are futile, ultimately an illusion, they're perhaps a psychological crutch, a sort of prosthesis, and yet they are also absolutely vital because if we don't have boundaries then terrible things will happen. In this diary, Kafka reflects very interestingly on what he calls minor literature. And by this he means literature written by a minority group within a dominant culture. So for him, Kafka, as a German-speaking Jew within Prague, this was a kind of form of being an outsider within a language and a culture. And as Kafka says, minor literature is characterized by many things, but above other things, it's characterized by being more political, more politically critical than the literature produced by authors who feel more at home within that language. Now, coming back to the question of narrative and identity and borders and so on, I think we should add another question here, which is the question of the voice of the narrator. Whether this is a personal 
first person, or an impersonal, what we call omniscient narrator. So narrators are, of course, vital to the stories that we read. And as readers, we have to, to some extent, put our trust in these narrators, because they are the ones telling the story. But then, of course, as you know, the figure of the unreliable narrator has been a very effective literary device for many centuries. I'll just mention one famous, slightly pop literature example, which is Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot novel, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. I won't give away the twist if you haven't read it, but one of the most spectacular examples of unreliable narrators. And so talking about narrators, I'm coming to my final example, which is the German-Bosnian writer Sasha Stanisic. So Stanisic shot to fame with his first novel, How the Soldier Repairs the Gramophone, which is set in his native Bosnia during the Bosnian War, and then tells the story of a boy's wartime experience and flight or exile to Germany, which is where Stanisic lives now. His second novel, For the Fest, or translated by Anthea Bell as Before the Feast, is very different. It's set in an East German village, a fictional East German village called Fürstenfelde in the East German Brandenburg province of Uckermark. And people didn't really like this. Why doesn't he write about Bosnia again? So the German-Jewish critic Maxim Biller wrote a very scathing article in Die Zeit saying that Stanisic is basically selling out by trying to integrate into the German mainstream and writing what he called East German folklore. And he says, as a migrant German writer, you should capitalize on your otherness. You should write stories about where you come from, not about German topics. I would say that basically the novel isn't as straightforward about German identity as you might think. And this is why I think Stanisic is such an amazing writer and such an interesting example. What's interesting about the novel, among many other things, is that it's told by a first-person plural narrator. So a we narrator, which is quite unusual, I think, for novels by and large. So on the one hand, you of course have to ask, who is this we? At first sight, it seems to be simply a kind of collective village voice, but then fissures and cracks seem to appear within this collective identity. So the we seems to be sometimes explicitly male, so therefore very gendered. It also seems to be very hostile towards certain, both towards outsiders to the village community, people from Berlin, <coughs> foreigners, strangers, but also hostile towards certain people within the village community. So I think what Stanisic's novel shows us then is that narratives really are there both to assert identity, perhaps to draw us into a sense of community and belonging, that is obviously one of their functions throughout history, but then also very subtly to show up the mechanisms by which we actually get drawn in by means of narrative, and then thirdly, perhaps, perhaps for us to take a critical distance from these strategies, to be able to see through the strategies, or perhaps to at least have a critical sense of distance. So in the case of Stanisic, for instance, the we narrative gradually and rather eerily reveals a rather violent tendency. So the novel is set during the night before the, um, the feast that is mentioned in the title, and repeatedly the narrative we voice hints at some terrible violence that might be part of this age-old feast that the village community are celebrating, as the narrator tells us early on. We are glad, 
Anna is going to be burnt. The sentence will be carried out at the feast tomorrow. Yep, one more sentence. So Anna is in fact a character within the novel. She's a young woman who goes for a run in the night and we find out that she's going to move to Rostock to begin studying medicine tomorrow. But throughout this nocturnal narrative, we're never quite sure whether Anna is really going to be a victim of some sort of savage ritual that goes back centuries, or whether sentences such as tomorrow is going to be her final day, have a much more harmless dimension. And I think it's precisely that power of narrative to unsettle and confuse and question our own attitudes. That's why I think the purpose of literature lies and why students still study texts that are old, but also hopefully texts that are more, much more recent. Thank you. Timothy asked me to say a few things about how someone who comes out of the field of media communication research might think about the power and perils uh, of narrative. Now, um, uh, forgive a moment of sort of uh, programmatic advertising, if you will. Um, for those of you who are, are not familiar with the field of media communication research, it doesn't exist in Oxford, for example, um, it's an interdisciplinary field of research that's concerned essentially with the question of how people share symbols across time and space. Um, in my case, uh, since my uh, chair is in political communication, uh, the central question is posed the role of communication in the fundamental political questions, whether these are about sort of recognized institutional established political actors, or more broadly, the existential fundamental political questions, who are we, how do we live together, who gets what, when, and how. Um, so this is sort of the field, if you will. And the origins of the field is uh, in social science, and psychology, and in the humanities, with rhetoric in particular in America, uh, speech communication programs. And some of the greatest scholars in our field originally, like Catherine Hall Jameson and others, came out of that area. Now, um, as I thought about the question Timothy put to me of how we think now as a field about uh, narrative, uh, I realized we, we don't really very much. Um, because I think, it, like many other fields that are sort of largely become uh, primarily social scientific endeavors, uh, I suppose we have become rather impressed with numbers, um, with quantification in various forms, uh, and, and I, I wholeheartedly embrace that, though I suppose it saddens me sometimes that we don't think so much about narrative uh, as we perhaps should. Um, in the sense that, of course, there are some world-disclosing insights here that are not a surprise to Carolyn or anyone else on the, on the panel, but I think are sometimes forgotten from, from, from contemporary social scientists about thinking about communication uh, not as the transmission of information, but it's about the creation of meaning through relations. Uh, so as a relational thing, as a pragmatic thing, and not simply a question of the content of something and the if 